Okay. My mics are good. Perfect. My stuff is together. My thing is recording. My, my seltzer. My game <laughs> seltzer is in hand. That's what I should do is I should just uh, contact Spindrift for a sponsorship and leave it at that. <laughs> you do mention them every time. Uh, yeah, but I don't ever promote it or anything. Well, no, it's not actually in the recording, but you could with ease. I could. Because it's, it's there. Because even if they don't pay me and they just send me free Spindrift, they're like, yay! <laughs> Welcome back, everybody. Welcome to episode one, The Truth About Investing, Back to Basics. My name is Chris Holling. And I'm Sean Cooper. And today we are going to talk about the history of health insurance and how it got started. And actually, before we get started, I want to put out a couple shout outs. Uh, first, the intro music that is just just groovy enough to, to get by and make me happy and comfortable is brought to you by Ben Lemmer. Uh, he's, a, he's a good friend of mine that does some music. You can find him on SoundCloud under Benji Talkin'. If you decide to go ahead and check him out, you can hear the, the Benji Talkin' hit the, hit the sound, hit the music as it's coming through. Uh, and so he does great work. The other thing that I want to shout out to is also uh, my, my good man, Sean Cooper here. <clears throat> because uh, this is the third time that we're recording this podcast <laughs> for quality because uh, I don't know how to push the proper buttons to record things, and it, the last one was perfect. Uh, you know, if you listen to this episode and you think, man, that was that was only mediocre, know that the last time we recorded it was even better than this time. I just uh, We just... I just didn't get the right file through. So so imagine that this one was even better. <laughs> and that's that's how that how that went. So in all fairness though, this wouldn't be happening at all if it wasn't for you. So cuz I wouldn't even know how to piece together the the audio files or anything along those lines. Well, thank you for giving me such a great kudos on that and you will get your $5 later. It's <laughs> come to you via Venmo. <laughs> oh, um, but I would also like to add that if you are interested in the information from today's topic as you've, you're know, listening and you want to learn more, the bulk of the information that we are going to be drawing on can be read in The History of Healthcare Costs and Health Insurance by Linda Gorman, PhD. Again, that's The History of Healthcare Costs and Health Insurance by Linda Gorman, PhD excellent read if you've got the time it's like 34 pages so but we're going to condense it and we are far more interested that we are <laughs> <laughs> well, at least chris is more interesting i won't give myself that much credit it's like a cool by association thing where it's like you know you hang out with the the cool kid and like oh yeah i'm in man whatever that, it's it's fine that worked in <laughs> grade school and junior high i don't uh, know how much yeah. it works anymore that, the grade school and junior high applies to life. Like you can pick <laughs> your pick your nose and pick your friends, but you can't pick your friend's nose. Still true. <laughs> All right. So the history of health insurance. Um, 
So I'm, I'm going to go back quite a ways here to get us started. And uh, what I mean by that is up to about 1900, healthcare in its traditional sense really didn't exist. Hospitals were viewed as a place that you went essentially to die. Um, <laughs> th there wasn't a lot of treatment going on. I, treatment at that time was still, uh, I mean, as an example. Voodoo. Was it yeah, uh, there was some of that, I'm sure. Um, but no, uh, some of the traditional treatments that went on was still like bloodletting and things of that nature. So you would literally go in and they would attach a leech to your skin. Was the idea to take the sickness out? Is that what the whole bloodletting yeah. thing was about? Yeah, uh, they, they had at least figured out that um, a lot of the things that we fought were blood-related uh, diseases or viruses and things of that nature. So the idea was to take it out. What they failed to grasp was that your white blood cells are what's typically f doing the fighting for you. So you were also taking that out. Um, gotcha. So you're literally reducing your own defenses and just becoming anemic or the equivalent of. Um, there, to be fair, there are instances where bloodletting can potentially be advantageous but it was applied to large swaths of medicine and didn't really work for most of them in fact it most of the time it exacerbated the problems but point being it wasn't really healthcare thought of as health care at that point in time uh in fact that's why at that time there wasn't much in the way of health insurance either what they had was called sickness payments because you went to the hospital because you were sick not because you were going to get health care and uh by sickness sickness payments what i mean by that is they they actually had accounts set up that were almost kind of like our uh hsas or fsas um so uh flexible spending accounts um that kind of thing which but, we'll cover later in a future right, episode right promise. absolutely um the sickness payments were basically accounts that you could contribute money to so that you can then use it for your health, your hospital bills. Um, in s a minority of instances, the employer would also contribute, but that wasn't normally the case. Problem was these accounts really weren't utilized. And it, I say problem, but it wasn't necessarily a problem because part of why they weren't utilized was A, because people weren't that forward thinking, but B, because the average health cost on an annual basis for the average person was like five dollars which even then wasn't a big deal i have a question I have a question. Yeah. uh you're you're talking about hospital bills and such in the 1800s that we're talking about right now yes right? Well, yeah this might be a silly question but i mean i guess part of me didn't even really realize hospitals were that that's not true i i realize hospitals are present in the 1800s because you're there there's images in my head of, of stories and, and treatments and such, but when when was the first hospital around? Do you know? Not a clue. You'd have to look that one up. I didn't go quite that far back. Okay, hmm. I might I might research. Okay, sorry. That's fair. Please continue. All right. Um, so, you know, jumping forward a decade or so, uh, you know, nineteen hundreds, nineteen, getting up to the nineteen twenties was when healthcare actually started being offered. So treatments actually started being offered and people started to view hospital as a place to go to get better. And with that, because treatments were actually being offered, the cost of healthcare started to skyrocket. You might, you know, a, a 
serious treatment, a few days in uh, critical care might be a few hundred dollars, which was quite a bit out of pocket at that time. That's when the, the cost of healthcare really started becoming a, a concern for people. Even more so as you get into the late 1920s, 1929, as we start to get into the Great Depression, when people were having serious financial issues due to the Depression, and so the idea of spending a few hundred dollars on healthcare bills was pretty much out of the question. And so the hospitals uh, really started to struggle financially because people were no longer coming. They had gotten accustomed to these higher bills coming in and uh, doing well, and they had expanded to account for uh, the influx of people that wanted to get treatment. And now all of a sudden, people are no longer coming. They see their profits dramatically reduce. And an astute individual happened to notice that on average, people were actually spending more on cosmetics annually than they were on their health care. So, wow. you know, yeah, I mean, basically, it just proves that we were vain even back then. Um, but more specifically, it, 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 the real reason for it, I, you know, I'm, I'm being a bit sarcastic there, but the real reason for it was cosmetics. You know, you could pay 50 cents to a dollar, you know, in a month and, you know, have your monthly cosmetics and you know, you can be happy. And that at the time wasn't that big of an outlay, whereas a few hundred dollars to go to the hospital was. People couldn't afford that. So well, Baylor, go ahead. To catch you real quick, sorry. Uh, and just, just because I know that we're going to be moving forward, so we're going to get further and further from it. Uh, looking it up a little bit, uh, there's, it looks like the, there, I mean, there's a stack of information in, in what I'm looking up right now, but uh the the first hospital in North America was put in like 1524. Wow. However, um, when you're looking at homeopathic hospitals, that's early 1800s, and then the uh, um, when you're looking past that into around the same time you're talking about early 1900s, that's when you're looking at uh, specialized trauma cares and the first NICU yep. that was in place. Um, but uh, right here, which attaches to what you're talking about with the people are going to hospitals to to die, <laughs> is uh, 1899 Chicago, Illinois. How do you like that? Is the first motor-powered electric ambulance enters service. And wow. at that time, actually, um, ambulances, how, how they functioned is they were originally just hearses. Uh, they were they were old rundown hearses that started to get hired, I believe, by the hospital staff specifically, where they'd call and say, "Hey, there's somebody here that's about to die. You might you might want to send over the the hearse." And they started to realize that if they were able to get some treatment into a higher end medical facility, they might actually have a better chance to be able to survive from that point. So then they started sending these hearses over, these old rundown hearses, to pick up the person so that on their way to the hospital, if they die, then they just take a turn and go to the graveyard, go to the corner or however that's set up at the time. Right. Or they would get to the hospital and they would receive the treatment. And uh, that's actually where the term ambulance drivers came from because they didn't have any medical training of any sort. They were just involved in it and they would just drive the ambulance and be a guy maybe two people and then because they were going for medical interventions that's when they started to realize hey we might be able to do some stuff while we are driving and maybe as soon as somebody gets there and that's when they slowly started incorporating more and more 
medical treatments and medical uh, transport, I guess, to try and help better that survivability rate. And uh, that's that's where ambulances come from, attaching to uh, <laughs> going to the hospital to die. So there's there's that for you before we get too far away from the early 1900s. <laughs> that's fair, yeah. No, it, I mean, just adds to the, the concept of this. Uh, people think of the increasing costs of healthcare, but they don't think of the increasing benefits. Sure. You know, uh, all the machines and techniques and things that were adapted over time, those are those add to the cost, but it also increased the actual service being provided, the chance of survival, things along those lines. Absolutely. Um, Jumping back. No, no, that's all right. Jumping back here, though. So we get into the Great Depression. Hospitals are struggling. People are spending more on cosmetics than they are on their health care. Baylor University Hospital in Dallas decided to partner with a uh, group of teachers and actually offered a prepaid plan. Now, this wasn't really an original idea. They, there were prepaid plans, plans prior to this, but this there, was the there, first. There were prepaid <laughs> plans prior, yeah. prior to the pre- pre- preparatory pre-hospital positions. It's <laughs> <laughs> a lot of pee. Uh, yeah, Sorry. put that pop filter <laughs> to work. Um <laughs> But this was the first really large adoption of it outside of like your fraternities and things of that nature. And Baylor basically just charged these teachers $6 per year each, and they got 21 uh, days in the hospital. Again, it was still a kind of a time-oriented thing, not necessarily a treatment-oriented thing at that time because we were uh, still transitioning to the treatment concept. But $6 obviously didn't cover someone that came in with uh, you know severe illness and needed to be treated over the course of a couple of weeks but they knew that the most majority of the uh, teachers wouldn't actually need to use the service or maybe they'd come in for a routine physical things of that nature so they were able to you know basically spread the cost over all of these teachers and they guaranteed themselves a uh, stream of income other hospitals seeing this really, and while they were really struggling, decided they wanted to adopt this Baylor methodology, which eventually became as you know as it expanded, um, the American Hospital Association you know was a little leery, but they wanted to make sure that it stayed in house. There weren't to avoid basically third party fees, additional taxes, and uh, avoid the reserve requirements that would have been instituted had it become an insurance uh, offered plan as opposed to a prepaid plan offered by the hospitals. And they were able to basically expand it to lots of hospitals. So instead of just these teachers uh, being tied to Baylor, you had lots of people paying in and they could go to any of the hospitals associated with the plan. And it eventually became known as Blue Cross. But but it was only Baylor initially, is what you're saying. Correct. Yes, and Baylor then, then, Baylor formulated the concept. Yep. Okay. And then Blue Cross is Baylor. Baylor is Blue Cross. At least initially is what we're looking at, right? Yeah, I, I wasn't necessarily referred to as Blue Cross at that time. It, it became Blue Cross after it oh. expanded well beyond Baylor. But yeah. Okay. Okay. Like a like down the road when they started getting the other hospitals involved and started getting others on board is when it became Blue Cross, is what you're saying? Correct. Okay. Yep. 
Yep. And then if you you know fast forward a little bit further, um, I think it was really widely adopted by 1939, and um, it was actually further expanded into the medical societies, so to include physicians in 1946, and that was the Blue Shield portion of it. So when by 1946, in- go ahead. Sorry, when you're saying including physicians, you're you're including physicians in in the care, or they're they're on board with how the treatments are being done, or what what's the inclusion for the physicians that you're talking about? Uh, so more anybody outside of the hospitals that is a practicing physician for for them to receive treatment or to get involved to treat to get involved to be part of the overall plan. So gotcha. okay. you pay into the prepaid plan. Now, you instead of just going to the hospitals, you can also go see a uh, primary care physician in a private clinic or something along those lines. Okay, because they are on board with it, which is what caused it to start to bleed into the other hospitals and not just other physicians then, right? The, it already bled into other hospitals. Now it's bleeding into oh. private clinics. Oh, okay. So they started uh, to see so that it was holding up in hospitals and then you wanted the private physicians to also have access to this this insurance approach and that's when it became blue shield yes gotcha okay yep sorry i'm just gonna keep interrupting you and asking questions it's it's, it's my job that's what I do. no that's that's fair um and <laughs> ju- and to give an idea of how how rapidly this expanded i mean we uh, it was 19 late 1920s early 1930s that baylor really adopted this by 1945, Blue Cross represented 59% of the coverage in oh, the wow. U.S. Coverage, because so, that's how many people were covered or out of all the insurance policies? they Insurance they policies. Okay. Yeah. Wow. So this was the, the first thing that really formulated the, the current healthcare system, health insurance system, I should say, that we have. And it was really just kind of a series of accidents. So the the first one was Baylor basically trying to come up with a way to get people to spend more money on health care. And that was the prepaid plan that became Blue Cross Blue Shield. Um, jumping forward from there, we have a series of additional accidents that really set this concept into stone and formulated the healthcare health insurance system that we have today. So uh, 1942, we were deep into World War II and there was, you know, lots of uh, different struggles going on, obviously, but uh, they started rationing goods and uh, companies were having to ramp up production. But at the same time, in 1942, they introduced the Stabilization Act. And what that did was essentially limit wage increases. It, it basically froze wages for everyone. So while these companies that were in high demand because their products were being uh, produced for the war effort were needing labor, uh, they were trying to ramp up production, they needed these workers, but they couldn't entice them to come because wages had been frozen to try to um, you know, stabilize everything in the economy. And what that did was force them to turn to other options to entice people to come. And the, the primary option available to them were fringe benefits. So that's where 
health insurance being offered by the employer became a nice fringe benefit to say, hey, well, we'll cover your health insurance. We can't give you a raise, but we'll cover some of these additional costs on your behalf to, to entice people to come work. And so that's where it shifted from being um, individual purchase plans to really focus on employer purchased plans. And they Just, they were able ahead. to, as a business, better afford that because it, it 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 was not as expensive. I'm assuming for them to to get coverage like that for their employees versus just paying them more. Is that part of the reason they did that, or was it just true? Uh, I mean, it, it was primarily for uh, to you know a recruiting effort, but it did have the nice additional benefit of offering group plans. And the whole premise of insurance is that you're working off of the large, uh, the law of averages as it relates to large numbers. So the more people you have in a plan, the more the the, the better the averages work, and therefore the less the technically the lower the premium you have to charge in order to offset the risk of having an outlier. Um, okay. So by having a group plan, you are able to bring lots of people to the table that help with those averages, and thereby can potentially reduce the premium because you're reducing the risk of outliers. But so, that wasn't And a, by uh, outliers, I mean people that cost significantly more than the average. Okay. But that wasn't a, a, a tax-deductible thing for the business in itself at this Not point? Not yet, no. Okay. Uh, so, uh, you, yes, so that was 1942 was the Stabilization Act. The very next year, 1943, they made it so that those fringe benefits, specifically your the health insurance that was being paid by your your employer, was not taxable as wages. Gotcha. So you're getting this benefit; they're paying your health insurance cost, but you're not being taxed for that benefit. So nice bonus. Um, what really set it into stone was 1954 when the IRS codified the deductibility of health insurance premiums. That employers were paying. So employer paid health insurance actually became tax deductible for the employer. That's what you were kind of alluding to earlier. And that's what really set it in stone that employer based health insurance was going to become incredibly widespread. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. Uh, I, I don't want to necessarily call this next one an accident, but additional things that really kind of, um, molded our health insurance was in 1964 and 65 was when they adopted Medicare and Medicaid and basically made it so that, uh, you know, this concept of health insurance to fund the bulk of your health care costs applied to literally everybody over age 65. Um, now, at the time, it wasn't as big a deal because in 1964, 65, the average male life expectancy was 66 and the average right. female was 71.7. So realistically, you were expected to, as a as a man, to take advantage of this benefit for a year. Well, that was uh, the case woman, with the social, sorry, that was the case with social security as well, right? Oh yeah, absolutely. So e- even, even more so, in fact. Uh, so social security would have been uh, several decades prior and at that time, you know, Social Security, the average life expectancy was less than the age at which Social Security kicked in. So you literally weren't expected, even women weren't expected to actually get benefits unless you lived significantly longer than your life expectancy. Oh, wow. 
yeah so um yeah it was it was a nice concept from a a political running standpoint but in (laughs) practicality it wasn't designed to really cost much that that's what kind of uh, you know codified this whole concept of health insurance and the multiple degrees of separation that we see today where as a a consumer of healthcare services you're paying part of your insurance premium your employer is paying the bulk of it your employer is paying uh, choosing the insurance provider your insurance provider is in turn paying the healthcare provider and so you basically have multiple degrees of separation between the consumer of the health care services and the provider um, basically eliminating you know the the desire to um, control costs from a consumer standpoint and also eliminating in many cases the consumer's ability to choose their provider depending on what type of insurance you have um, but that that's getting a little bit away from our, our topic of the, the history here. So if we Because that's when you're looking at things like HMOs and, and such, right? What you're right. describing right now. Yes. Which we'll also cover in a future episode, I promise. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> we'll just, I'll time. just throw these little tidbits in here. Um little, little teasers. Little yeah. yeah. <laughs> so uh after nineteen sixty five, the you know, Healthcare costs really start ripping out of control um, by the 1970s, and what we're looking at is more and more research and development. So you start seeing things. I mean, we already had the X-ray, but now we start seeing things like MRIs coming out or uh, uh, CT scans and things of that, or uh, CAT scans. Sorry, um, that are very very expensive machines, but can potentially be very very advantageous from the standpoint of avoiding. Um, exploratory surgery or spotting things well in advance of when they may, might cause greater issues but they're very expensive to build and operate and therefore the utilization of them are very is very expensive so that that all contributed to the rising cost of health care in addition to some of the other things that I talked about. So what we see in the 1970s is just a slew of regulations come out. In, fi- in fact, there were you know 50 some odd uh, regulations of various types that started coming out to, in an effort to try to control costs. Uh, one of those in the 1970s was the Certificate of Needs laws. And what that did was it basically made it so that a state had to approve the buying of equipment like CAT scanners and MRIs. And the idea was, okay, well, if, you know, we'll only approve these things if we see that there's sufficient need for it. If there's fewer of these machines, there'll be fewer people utilizing them and therefore lower costs, ignoring a number of advantages to having lots of them. In fact, one of the the things that they came to realize was once they approved it for one hospital in a region, that hospital then act almost as a, a block to other hospitals in the region being approved for a CAT or an MRI because they could argue that, well, we already have one in our region, so why do we need another one? We can service the whole region. And by having that block, they effectively created monopolies where they could charge even more for the service because they were the only one that could even offer the service. 
Is that still the case currently? Like, or, or do you have to go through a certain regulation process of any sort to say, say I, I have the the MRI machine? Am I able to prevent the next door hospital from getting an MRI, or is that is that not the case any longer? No, uh, most of those laws, fortunately, have been repealed at this point in time. There there might be a few stragglers still holding on, but uh, I, I believe most of them have been repealed at this point. With that said, there are still some things that, uh, you know, the hospitals can get them, but now they're, in many cases, having to get approval from insurance companies in order to utilize them. So there's other issues at play that still are impacting those higher cost machines and the utilization of them. Um, Some of the other rules and regulations that came into play as we, you know, move further down the road is in uh, 1983, they introduced the Diagnosis-Related Groups, so DRGs. And what this did was basically create flat fees for most services. So they evaluated the services being offered, said, okay, well, if this person comes in presented with these symptoms, you have to do this, and this is what we're going to reimburse you for it. Um, and it started primarily like a, like with a, like Medicare, but then the insurance companies adopted it as well. Sorry, what were you about to say? Uh, like a like a standing protocol type of thing. Like yeah, more or less. Yeah. Okay. Um, and they actually introduced uh, four hundred and sixty-seven DRGs. Oh wow! Right, and like initially to start with, that was the initial. Yeah. Wow. Jeez. So it it was a lot. It was pretty substantial, and I mean they were trying to. Uh, count for tons and tons of different symptoms. The issue this created, well, there was a number of issues really, but one of them was if the hospital knew what they were going to be reimbursed based on the the symptoms, even if there were other symptoms present and they had to do other services, um, or they knew that the person was not going to recover as quick as the average that was being accounted uh, for in the DRG, um, they knew what they were going to be reimbursed for, even if their costs were going to be sub- substantially higher than that. And that effectively made the those who were older and or very, very ill a liability for the hospital. They knew they were only going to be reimbursed X amount, but they knew also knew that in order to provide the adequate treatment, it was going to cost more than that. Okay. And so, so this created entire fields of lobbying where they, the hospitals were trying to lobby for additional DRGs to account for additional uh, symptoms, additional services. It, it eliminated, in many cases, the doctor's ability to say, okay, yes, this person fits these normal symptoms, these normal uh, issues, and these are the treatments I should provide. But these other symptoms are are also present that I need to account for that are not accounted for in the DRG and they're going to cost me extra to provide those services. So it it created some issues there. It also, um, in addition to the lobbying and, you know, that entire um, economy there, uh, it also created a demand for billing services because you had to now bring in people that were experts in these DRGs to figure out, okay, well, how how do we code this to make sure we get paid and get paid adequately to actually cover our costs and things of that nature? So that's a whole nother cost that the hospital had to take on. and Which is ultimately something that has to get paid by the 
consumer in the process, right? Exactly. Very much so. Sure. Okay. Yep. So as things advance, by 2004, our 467 DRGs jumped to 526 DRGs. And um, by 2006, they expanded it to become all patient refined diagnosis-related groups, so APR DRGs, in an effort to try to make it so that hospitals or you know medical practitioners could utilize some of their own you know free thinking you know utilize their actual education as opposed to just doing what the insurance tells them they can do right um getting back to that i want to paint a little bit um more colorful picture on what i mean the liability that certain demographics presented with regard to these DRGs and the some of the lack of foresight in regards to the DRGs as well. So okay. if you take a hip fracture as an example, from 1981 to 1986, the standard, so keep in mind the DRGs were introduced in 1983. So the standard for a hip fracture patient from for recovery went from 21.9 days down to 12.6 days. So from in, a regulatory in recovery? recovery, in recovery, okay. yeah. So from a regulatory standpoint, they look at that and go, oh, great, we reduced the recovery. We reduced the cost. That was the goal. What it didn't account for was any tracking related to that, this. So, or the really the standards that went behind it. So, Yes, the days went down. Yes, the costs went down. But the distance a person had to travel, so the standard by which uh, they would release a person also went down. In fact, in that time period, so 81 to 86, it went from 93 feet to 38 feet. So less than half. In the walking distance for them to pass? Walking distance, yeah. So before you were said, yep, go ahead, you're done. The walking distance was cut by over half. Wow. And the result was, in in that same period, the number of those individuals who were recovering from a hip fracture that went from the hospital to a nursing home increased from 38% to 60%. The number that were in a nursing home a year afterwards went from 9% to 33%. So these were the unintended consequences of the the liabilities that the DRGs created for the hospitals. And the DRGs eventually actually became, the the concept of them were actually eventually applied to the nursing homes as well. So these people now became a liability for the nursing home and the nursing home didn't want to have them because they became a cost, basically a cost suck as well. So they're kicking him back to the hospital, hospital's kicking him back to them, and then they're kicking him back to somebody else. Um, and so there were a lot of unintended consequences that resulted in additional increased costs down the road. Um, but the hip fracture is just one example. Um, well, that's difficult because as the as the consumer, then you're, you're still spending money. Uh, arguably, you might be spending more money in the long run between all those circumstances, but it's... Uh, very likely more. Yeah, because those, those yes. decisions are being made where it's more expensive for you uh, just just because it's through these these regulations that are happening kind of outside of your control, which is, which is right. Difficult. Yep, very much so. 
Um, yeah, so, in, I mean, this all started back in the 1970s when they were really trying to control costs, and they introduced regulations in order to do that. You jump back to uh, 2002 as the most recent data I, that was presented in the article I had been reading, um, and the regulations alone – so just the regulations, not the unintended consequences that I'm, I've alluded to, but sure. just the regulations represent 20% of healthcare spending as of 2002. So oh, of wow. all your, the healthcare spending, 20% is regulation. Wow, geez, that's, that's interesting. Yeah, that's, I mean, that, that in, all, in all fairness, uh, they, they, they create some benefits. Um, so again, 2002... The benefits associated with these regulations represented savings of $212 billion. Wow. Unfortunately, the costs of the regulations were $340 billion. Uh, oh, I see. It, the math doesn't work out for me, but... No. Yeah. I mean, long story short, if you eliminated the regulations, yes, there'd be some, un some unfortunate consequences associated with the cost, but the net savings would be roughly 10%. I guess. Yeah. Um, some of the other regulations that came into play, uh, 1986, you had EMTALA, which is the Emergency Medical Treatment and Active Labor Act, basically stated that anyone presenting at a hospital emergency room must be treated. Um, the goal was to make it so that everyone had access to health care in emergency situations. That was the goal of that. It accomplished that goal in all reality. It obviously increased the cost of healthcare because uh, it was applied specifically to emergency rooms, which, as anyone knows, going to an emergency room is far more expensive in most instances than seeing a primary care physician. And again, unintended consequences from 1993 to 2003, emergency room visits increased by 26%. So again, increasing costs overall and that do you think that increased because of the the requirement to to treat at that point like you're talking about yes i think that was definitely a factor um that's interesting because uh, the i mean to me part part of the issue that that comes out in all of that is that with the requirement to treat that you know it it's something that a lot of us do do feel the same way that we we want to make sure that we are doing our best to take care of our fellow man and, and making sure that we can do what we can to get somebody right. taken care of if, if they can't. And that's, uh, I think that that just inherently sits inside of everyone. Uh, and, and unfortunately, just when you're looking at numbers and circumstances and, and these things, if you have an increase of, what did you say, 26%? Yes. Is that what you said? A, an increase of 26% of the utilization of emergency rooms that is a required treatment that's going to happen. The 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 cost of of treating those people is going to happen. I, I mean, we're we're talking about how the costs have to get absorbed from somewhere. In general, when we're talking about getting billing included, billing gets included, so the consumer is somebody that's going to have to pay for that. And so, yep. when the emergency room visits need to get covered and someone is required to get treated, then that is going to have to come from somewhere. And if nowhere else, it's going to come from the same insurance companies that are trying to to pay out to take care of your thing uh, because that's that's how the, the money's got to come from somewhere and that's that's a difficult circumstance right yeah 
somebody's got to pay for that. Um, you look at uh, Medicare, uh, they reimburse approximately 87 cents for every dollar in expenses that the hospitals absorb. The rest okay. of us have to pick up that bill. Wow. Yeah, interesting. And it's it's a dwindling budget as it is because we were talking about how how the age expectancy is uh, <laughs> life expectancy larger. is increasing, yeah. right? Because yep. if it was set the way that it is now, what's what's the average age expectancy right now? Eighty eight, I want to say. Something uh, it depends lines. on how old you are. I don't know what the average the average overall. <laughs> I yeah, I don't know. I, I guess I mean today. Today it's it's about eighty eight. I want to say. Uh, is the age expectancy, um, and I, I imagine it's different between male and female as well. But uh, I, I oh, you I mean guess. for somebody being born today, then, or what? No, no. The average life expectancy of somebody today is is about eighty eight. I think the people that are being born today are more likely to see hundreds. Right. I, I guess um, what I was getting at is somebody who's eighty has it today has a different life expectancy than somebody who is ten today. Yes, yes, absolutely. And I guess what I was getting at was that if we're trying to operate under the same concepts of when Medicare would have been applied today would have been more along the lines of when somebody is 80. Oh, yes. Was when Medicare or Medicaid would, would be kicking in today, but because it's left over from the, the previous life expectancy, now we have the costs that are that are present for that stretch of time for about, what is that, 20, 20 years? Of, uh, of coverage on top of the amount that's going to the hospitals for those that, that can't afford it that Medicaid is also trying to cover. Exactly. That's a, that's a hefty couple of bills to handle. Yeah. Yeah, and al along the lines Sorry. of, uh, you know, trying to, you know, help cover everyone, you know, which is something I think, like you said, most people would like to see happen. Uh, whether yeah. or not it's uh, feasible in the the methods that have been adopted is debatable. But uh, along those lines and along the lines of trying to control costs overall, by two, uh, 2013 is when you saw the implementation of the Affordable Care Act. And the, the goal and the promise was to reduce premiums on average. Sure. And to provide health care for everyone. That was the goal. Um, the idea that you could re both reduce premiums and provide coverage for everyone, the, the math doesn't work out so well for me. But what we actually saw from 2013 to 2017, the average premium actually doubled. Oh, wow. So Why? four or five years, the premium that the average person paid for health insurance doubled. Why? What was the change? Uh, the Affordable Care Act. Well, sure. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, basically, you're co now covering a bunch of people that were not covered and are not going to be paying into the system. Mm. So all those other people are having to absorb that cost, like you, what you were talking about. It's mm -hmm. now mandatory, which means insurance companies no longer have to compete as much for your business because you you had to have it. Now it's right. not not necessarily the same today, but at the time. Additionally, we're seeing more utilization of emergency rooms. Part of that plays into the, the way the insurance uh, works and pays out, things of that nature. But it all led to the, the doubling of costs. Now, with that said, there are health insurance options that are available today 
that are less expensive than they were then. Those are the very, very, very low coverage options that most people don't want. Sure. Um, so there are less lower cost options. They don't cover a whole heck of a lot, and people are not using them because it would effectively represent a significant reduction in coverage from what they had. And that's why, uh, on average, the cost of the premiums has actually doubled over that time frame. Um in 2018, some additional aspects of the Affordable Care Act kicked in, and we saw the premiums after that had already doubled increase an additional 26%. Just to, to make up for the same things that you're talking about, or did something else change? It was additional um, provisions in the Affordable Care Act that kicked in. Oh, for a- additional coverages to... Right. To, okay, gotcha. Yep. So... All of these efforts by the government to try to control costs historically have backfired and increased costs overall. So just to recap a little bit, um, basically we had a series of events that really formulated the health insurance landscape that we have today. Jump back to the Great Depression People were spending more on cosmetics than they were on healthcare. Hospitals were struggling and they needed a way to convince people to spend more on healthcare on average. And so the prepaid plan came into being via Baylor University Hospital in Dallas. It was adopted and widespread and eventually became known as Blue Cross Blue Shield. Jump to World War II, we had the Stabilization Act, which froze wages. Employers needed to recruit employees and did that via fringe benefits in the form of paying for their health insurance. For that things was like sa- the, uh, the billing and stuff, right? Huh? That's that's what you're talking about, the the, the extra employees the that's uh, for, oh, no, for no, no, hiring just, for billing and such? No, no, no. So 19, just extra employees to be able to produce the goods that were needed for World War II. Oh, okay. Sorry. Stabilization Act. Yeah, you were, you're jumping a little further ahead in the DRGs and things of that nature. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, that was set in stone via the IRS codification of the deductibility of health insurance premiums paid by employers, so in 1954. And then it was basically created as a mandate for anyone over age 65 via Medicare and Medicaid. Okay. The regulations really started kicking in and trying to control costs in 1970s via certification of needs laws, uh, DRGs in 1983 and onward, and then EMTALA, which was the Emergency Medical Treatment and Active Labor Act, and then of course, our most recent Affordable Care Act in 2013. Wow. Okay. That's that's, and that's why we have the health insurance system we have today. <laughs> it's, it's amazing that that much happens in a – God, what are we looking at? That's a, it's a 120 years-ish that we're looking at, 150 years? I, I, I mean, I guess, uh, honestly, I guess from the, sense. I mean, from the time Baylor adopted the prepaid plan to today is – uh, less than 100 years. We're talking just over 90. Oh, geez. Wow. Interesting. Okay. Well, that's, uh, that's plenty of change <laughs> in, in 90 to get to, to, get to this point. Uh, well, and, and I guess the, the best thing is to, 
to continue going over a lot of these basics moving forward to to understand some of this. I okay. What I'm not alluding to very well, and it's probably just easier to outright say it, is that I'm sure there are people that are listening to this and saying, hey, I didn't expect a history lesson today. I thought I was going to learn about investing. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's the title of your podcast. <laughs> and the, the fact of the matter is, is that when you are looking at investing, you are looking at long-term goals. That's that's what investing is, making sure that you feel financially sound. You are making financial moves for later in life, for your long-term. And whether you like it or not, you are looking at your health. You're looking at your health long-term. You're looking at what the costs for your health are going to be long-term. You're looking at how health, health insurance is going to be involved in your life, and it's going to be different in the future for you, and that's why it's important to at least address this now because we're able to address the importance of what that future may look like and in order to do so there's there's a lot of stuff to understand here rather than just letting life happen to you and that's why we felt that it was important to make sure that we're taking time to address some some heavy health care health insurance stuff in the beginning of this truth about investing podcast wouldn't you say is there is there anything that i'm i'm missing or or overstepping or anything like that no yeah those are that that's really the goal those are the broad strokes is we're trying to cover every aspect of a person's financial needs and in covering each of those aspects we want to cover the basics and give people a base understanding before we delve too deeply into how it impacts your finances today and the planning uh, for the future. Totally. And because we, we need to look moving forward rather than just uh, the, the next episode that we're going to look at is we're, we're going to be going after deductibles. I believe that that sound right to you. Yes. Okay. Yep. And uh, because we're doing this moving forward, rather than just saying, Hey, we're, we're going to talk about health insurance and healthcare and we're going to talk about deductibles today and, and there, there are some people out there that go, well, I, I don't want to talk about this because I'm not, I'm not worried about my health. Why do I care about deductibles? That's why it's important for us to mention this. It's important to understand the, the history of how this all got to where we are now because we can't really control the past, but we can control moving forward. And that's why we both felt it was really important to address this history and, and looking at it to move forward. So we... We will be looking at a lot of foundation stuff to be able to have a, a better understanding of of what we are up against long term here. Right. What's the what's the saying? Those who ignore history are doomed to repeat it or something yes. along those lines. Yes. Yep. That's absolutely the case. And so let's uh let's let's not repeat that aggressive change of ninety years like that. Uh it's uh that's a lot, uh, and I, I think it's provided a lot of good things and good opportunities for us. And and there are some things that have become more costly and and difficult, and it's a little bit out of our control. And and the fact is, is these are the cards that were dealt, and so we can just better have an understanding now and moving forward. Which brings me to my next point. I want to thank everyone that has taken time to sit here and listen, because the fact that you are taking time to sit here 
to want to better yourself, to want to take control of what's happening to you and around you, and even take the time to learn about your finances moving forward and your investments and taking control, good on you. Because there are several people that will just go through life treading water Most and not people. even considering it. Most people. You're right. Absolutely. <laughs> I, I think the person that's uh, that is taking the time to improve their finances is a rarity. So definitely good on you for listening in. And we will, we do promise we will get to some of those topics that you probably are more expecting along the lines of budgeting and investing and things of that nature. Right. And it just takes time because this is we're we're gonna address this one at a time rather than just jump all over the place and it's it's what it's what we're we're hoping to do and please be a part of the ride for us. Get involved. Uh go ahead and and share share these podcasts. Make sure that where you're able to give ratings and give comments then we we'd love to get your feedback because we are learning along with you and uh we we look forward to it so thank you for just taking the time honestly i i'm gonna try and close it out because then i'm just gonna talk in circles about how how great our listeners are uh right uh, both of them right now right (laughs) (laughs) you mean you and me (laughs) okay there's there's three because you me me again and uh uh, me so it's four and <laughs> anyway uh, well thank you for joining us on episode one in this big journey starting a little heavy on the health care health insurance side with the truth about investing back to basics I am Chris Holling and I'm Sean Cooper and we will hear you I still haven't figured out how to say that now they'll hear will, us again you'll hear us again Hopefully. next time Hopefully. (laughs) Podcast disclaimer, disclaimer. The disclaimer following this disclaimer is the disclaimer that is required for this podcast to be up and running and fully functioning and moving forward. This is going to be the same disclaimer that you will hear in each one of our episodes. We hope you enjoy it just as much as we enjoyed making it. All content on this podcast and accompanying transcript is for informational purposes only. Opinions expressed herein by Sean Cooper are solely those of Fit Financial Consulting, LLC, unless otherwise specifically cited. Chris Holling, that's me, is not affiliated with Financial Consulting, LLC, nor do the views expressed by Chris Holling, me again, represent the views of Fit Financial Consulting, LLC. This podcast is intended to be used in its entirety. Any other use beyond the author's intent, distribution, or copying of its contents of this podcast is strictly prohibited. Nothing in this podcast is intended as legal, accounting, or tax advice and is for informational purposes only. All information or ideas provided should be discussed in detail with an advisor, accountant, or legal counsel prior to implementation. This podcast may reference links to websites for the convenience of our users. Our firm has no control over the accuracy or content of these other websites. Advisory services are offered through Fit Financial Consulting, LLC, an investment advisor firm registered in the states of Washington and Colorado. 
presence of this podcast on the internet shall not be directly or indirectly interpreted as a solicitation of investment advisory services to persons of another jurisdiction unless otherwise permitted by statute. Follow-up or individualized responses to consumers in a particular state by our firm in the rendering of personalized investment advice for compensation shall not be made without our first complying with jurisdiction requirements or pursuant an applicable state exemption. For information concerning the status or disciplinary history of a broker-dealer, investment advisor, or other representatives, a consumer should contact their state securities administrator. Amen. (laughs) Oh, man. Okay. Uh, Welcome, everybody. To episode one, the truth about investment, in- investing. All right, you know what? I, I don't even know what I'm talking about at all. Uh, we've, yeah, yep. Yeah. Uh, welcome, 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 welcome. Hey, thank you. Hello. I don't want to say welcome a bunch of times. <clears throat> uh, welcome back. There it is. Found it. Actually, I got a I got a story for you. So, one, <laughs> uh, uh, I I used to have that big angry handlebar mustache, right? That oh, I'm yeah. working on. I'm working on growing back right now. By the way, there you go. And uh, I I was at work one time. I had this guy come in, and uh, he he looked at it. He's like, "That's a that's an impressive mustache." I said, "Oh well, thank you." And he goes, "You know, I got this dog, right?" dog is a great dog i love to take him out and we, we would go and do the shows the the obstacle courses and take him go and go through the hoops and do all these things and every year i would go and it just occurred to me one time that maybe i should try and get some free food because there's all these sponsorships that are happening out there and so i call up this dog food place and said hey i'm planning on going out there do you have anything that you'd like to have a sponsorship yeah hey just put up this banner for us and we'll send you out with some free food and they said then i started to do that with a couple other things so i started to get some dog toys and before i knew it i was i was actively sponsored and i was getting money for doing these things and uh, i i just had the free food and i i didn't always make all that much money but then my trips were taken care of and i was just able to do what i wanted and it was it was easy and taken care of that's cool okay yeah neat dude what why? What why are you telling me this? Right? <laughs> He's like, oh, you should get your mustache sponsored. What? <laughs> <laughs> He's like, yeah, man, just go on out and and start asking around, see if any place is gonna do like, hey, here's some mustache wax, or hey, here's this this manly thing that we want you to represent, and especially with Instagram the way it is nowadays, you should get your mustache sponsored. And I'm like, yeah, okay. <laughs> and then like later that day, I'm like, I should get my mustache sponsored. <laughs> <laughs> So I, I, I never quite leaned into that, but I, I always think of that story, which is funny because whenever I think of impressed with mustaches, now I wind up thinking about dog food. So that's, that's, that's funny. <laughs> 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 